From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, a conversation with Margot Jefferson about her new memoir, Constructing a Nervous System. Her earlier memoir, Negro Land, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. And before that, she won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism for her work as book and arts critic for the New York Times. But first, Amazon workers voted for a union. Now what? Jane McAlevey will comment in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently, so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. We're still thinking about the historic victory of Amazon workers at that Staten Island distribution center, but winning the vote to form a union is only the first step. To explain what comes next, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's an organizer and the author most recently of the book A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. She's a senior policy fellow at the University of California's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, And she's also the nation's strikes correspondent. We reached her today in New York City. Jane McAlevey, welcome back. Great to be here, John. It's always nice to be with you on your show. Well, Amazon is the second biggest employer in the country. The New York Times told the story of how things started on Staten Island. It's a pretty good story. In the first dark days of the pandemic, an Amazon worker named Chris Smalls planned a small walkout over safety conditions at the retailer's only fulfillment center in New York City. The company quickly mobilized. Amazon formed a reaction team involving 10 departments, including its Global Intelligence Program, a security group staffed by many military veterans. There were more executives, including 11 vice presidents, who were alerted about the protest than there were workers who attended it. Amazon's chief counsel then described Chris Smalls as, quote, not smart or articulate, close quote, in an email sent to 1,000 people. He recommended making Chris Smalls the face of efforts to organize workers. The company then fired Chris Smalls, saying he'd violated quarantine rules by attending the walkout. 
Chris Smalls went on to win the first successful unionization effort at any Amazon warehouse in the United States. The New York Times called it one of the most significant labor victories in a generation. Now Amazon workers from another 50 distribution centers have contacted the union. My first question for you is, how did Chris Smalls and the Amazon Workers Union do it? What does the vote at Amazon Staten Island Warehouse tell us about how to organize a union and win an election? I guess I'm going to start by your the last question that you asked, then I might go back into some of the commentary, though I should say, Included in that first phone call with the lawyer that you were describing and setting up Incident Command Center was Jeff Bezos, by the way. It's a fact that Bezos himself was actually a party to that phone call. So right to the top of the damn ladder about one guy walking out over the fact that they had no COVID protocols in New York City, where at that point it was ground zero for COVID at a time when no one knew what this thing meant or what you were getting from it. So you've got to take ourselves back to March 2020 when when he walked out. And by the way, most employers were shutting down in New York City. So Amazon was like, oh, hell no, we're just going to work them. Who cares? But it reached the level of Jeff Bezos in that initial call. So let's just start for a minute with who Chris Smalls was, because I think this is really interesting. And then it's, it's going to feed right into how did they pull off this win? So Chris Smalls had been there since it opened. He had five years at that Amazon facility, which is called JFK 8, 8,500 workers. It's a gigantic facility, just for starters. It feels like an auto plant, right? The the auto plants of yore, right? Something like really Mm -hmm. big. So he had been there for five years, and in a high turnover facility, that's pretty interesting. Now, why was he there for five years? He'd been quickly elevated to management. So what does a manager do? A manager meets a lot of workers. A manager trains incoming workers. A manager has a different kind of access to workers than the average worker in the warehouse. And in listening to some of the workers in interviews subsequently, they will say he was one of the nicer managers, (laughs) right? So, So that's who Chris Smalls was. And when they fired him, it was so painfully obvious that they just did not want any attention about COVID. So what Chris decides to do is, because Chris has five years of connections in an otherwise high turnover facility, he knows a lot of the workers and they actually like him and they actually trust him. So Chris begins to reach out to some of the folks that he had been working with. There's a couple of immediate coworkers who knew about the protest, who walked out with him, One of them is a very good friend of his at this point, Derek Palmer, but there were others. And by the way, the New York Times reported yesterday that Bryson, one of the other workers fired subsequently, uh, is being forcibly reinstated by the labor board. Then that's just yesterday's news. And as an organizer, hmm, it's so wonderful (laughs) when the law actually works fairly and insists on putting an illegitimately fired worker back in with two and a half years of reinstated pay. So that just broke yesterday. And that's also nice news because when workers go in like that with an order from a judge, then this is relevant to what's going to be coming. They kind of walk in with extra, extra protection around them. And in a case that I wrote about in the Nation piece, which was Fitfield's Foods, kind of the largest parallel we have in contemporary times to a really big factory getting organized with a lot of labor violations and whatnot, it was actually the workers who were put back in under legal order, like this worker Bryson's going to be put back in, that actually were then very successful because the employer knew they had to be extra careful with them, right? So that's also happening just as of yesterday's court order. So there's a lot 
that's beginning to work in favor, I think, of the workers, not just the victory. So what did they do right? First, Smalls and his team of co-workers began to actually look around for how do you actually do this? Like they did serious homework. They began to read books and manuals. They flew themselves down to Bessemer to during that campaign to see what was happening down there. They've said in many podcasts that they had some concerns about what they saw, which is, I think, interesting. They then began to travel the country to just meet workers on strikes and else and do, who were doing not just Amazon workers. They just began to do worker self-education. Chris Smalls and his friends had not been union organizers before. Had they even been union members before? No, and not only that, but he was a manager. And I should clarify, John, when I use the word organizer, and I think this is important, I do not mean full-time paid professional. An organizer is somebody who understands that their time and their energy and their work is about focusing on the workers who are not yet convinced that something like a union matters. So throughout this conversation, I just want to say up front, we should distinguish if you want when we're talking about like something like a someone who does it full time like me versus I use the word organizer quite liberally because there are, in fact, and Chris is an example of it, what I call natural organizers. In my books, I call them organic leaders. By definition, the use of the term organic leader that I have used in all of my books describes Chris Smalls and describes many of who went on to lead that victory. Chris would be the first to say this was not his victory, right? It took a lot of them doing it. And when I read all the interviews I've been reading, there's been some terrific just one-on-one interviews. And I've also been watching some of the shows that they're on. They did a big press conference last week where like 15 of them spoke. When I listened to their self-description of who they were in their work areas, they had a small committee, but a mighty committee. They had workers who had been there for several years in key different departments inside the facility. And this is something very important. I should just put a little bracket around. It's not really come out in the news yet, and it's actually very important. They had a labor board order that gave all of them more protection than the average Amazon worker has right now, in part because of Bessemer and in part because of the Chris Smalls firing and him contesting it, there was a ruling that the National Labor Relations Board made after a lengthy investigation, too long, we would say, too long. But in time enough for the election, and this really comes into the victory, they had an order from the National Labor Relations Board that was in place in Staten Island and in Bessemer, the second election in Bessemer, that said workers have the right to speak up in break rooms. Workers have the right to speak up on their break time. There's actually a very significant part of the story that's not gotten much attention at all. And when the employer is being watched and when the workers have been read their rights to speak up at break time, it gave the workers, now we're moving through what they did right, it gave the workers who then knew what to do with that order, right? Just because you get an order, it doesn't mean the workers know what to do with it. It gave those workers who were super savvy at that point the ability to speak up in the captive audience meetings and know they weren't going to get fired. Remind us, what's a captive audience meeting? So captive audience meetings are mandatory meetings on paid time that you cannot refuse to go to when the employer literally picks you off the line and they say, downstairs now, there's a mandatory meeting that you must be at and you cannot refuse. 
Because if you refuse, it's considered gross negligence and you don't have a union yet and you don't have just cause provisions, what's called just cause provisions. So what happened, what what the team, Chris Smalls and many of the team around him, right? Because Chris was not on the inside at this point. So this is the uh, this is the in-plant organizing committee working with Chris. They know that they've got some protection. They begin to speak up in those mandatory meetings. And that's hard to do. Now, we always encourage the, the workers to speak up. I can regale you with fun stories of things we have workers do in those meetings. Uh, there's always in the break rooms, there's always a microwave machine. We run in and give bags of popcorn to workers and say, <laughs> bring bags of popcorn and chomp like mad when you get in there, like make noise, you know. Okay, there's a lot you can do with those meetings if the committee is strong. At Amazon, the committee was really strong and partly because they had that legal order with them. So they went into the meetings and when the employer would start to tell lies, they would put their hand up and just say, I'm sorry, that's a lie. And they were removed from the meetings, but they couldn't be fired. So workers began to resist internally. And that original story I wrote a year ago, analyzing and dissecting the defeat at Bessemer in the first round, one of the things that I wrote is you have to take the space. Like you have to do what we call own the factory floor. If you're going to win a hard fight like that, you have to stand up to management. Your coworkers have to see it. They have to see you taking risk. And the team at the Amazon Labor Union, the inside committee did a brilliant job of challenging the employer. So the big issue now is what comes next. The company has already filed a protest with the National Labor Relations Board claiming that the Amazon Workers Union interfered with the vote by threatening workers unless they voted for the union. Tell us about the company tactics and what's going to happen after that. By the way, they asked... They asked for an extension on filing for their objections because they said they needed more time. I mean, but the objections are serious. And here's why. Most Americans don't understand that under U.S. labor law, which I always say is Byzantine and incredibly complex for a reason. I usually call it boss law or management law because that's really who it's written for. But under what we call U.S. labor law, step one is winning. But until you have what's called a certified union certified by the National Labor Relations Board, you in fact actually cannot force the employer to the negotiating table. So what the objections do, the employer and the union, both parties in the, in the National Labor Relations Board election, have up to seven days under U.S. labor law to file objections. The one that is most common, and I've had filed against me, I don't know, three dozen times, um, <laughs> is the exact one that Amazon led with which is that it was actually the union organizers, not the people who run surveillance systems internationally and arm small militias or large ones, as far as we know. They actually said it was the workers union people who were intimidating people to vote. If you win a campaign, every single employer I've ever helped workers defeat in a unionization election uh, at some point gets a charge like that. It's a delay strategy. So there is no certification right now. And most people are like, great, they're going to the negotiations table. And I'm like, yeah, they're not going to the negotiations table. Now they can get them there. And so the objection strategy is a delay strategy. As I outlined in my book, No Shortcuts, in the Smithfield Foods case, they delayed for 16 years Whoa. the workers getting the certification. Okay, that's a serious union busting campaign, but I think there's direct parallels to Amazon. What they do is, in short, 
They exhaust the internal National Relations Board elections internal objections process. Their lawyers are available, but then they cancel the day of the first hearing. It's so, so much, and now everyone's going to have COVID. Let me just take a wager. Every Amazon lawyer is going to have COVID randomly. So whatever excuse they make up. I've always, you know, we're all dressed up and ready with 100 workers to go to an objections hearing. This is so typical. And the lawyers for the company at the last minute have the plane was delayed from the union busting firm in Tennessee, whatever excuse. So once they get through, once the National Relations Board officers get pissed off enough, they'll start saying, great, we're going to have the hearing without you. Right. I mean, this is a this is a well-rehearsed game. So they will play it out once they go through all levels of objections and they'll just lose in all likelihood at every at every level of appeal that can go on for three to four years. Is there a way the workers can make this a shorter process, get to negotiations and then push the company to sign a contract? In order to get around a delay strategy, these workers have what we call strategic workplace leverage. Not all workers have it today, but a company dependent on same-day delivery or two-day delivery, or let's even say three-day delivery, coming from the main fulfillment center to 8 million people or more in greater New York, that's just New York City, actually enjoys something that we call strategic workplace leverage. If they can build to a 90% or greater strike, they can actually demand the company drop the objections and get to negotiations. That is going to be the fastest route to get there. Now, that's going to take some real work. This is a strike not to enforce the contract. This is a strike to get to negotiations. That's right. So what we so in a, so in a campaign, a similar campaign with a thousand nurses in Philadelphia in 2016, a hospital versus Amazon. These are not exact parallels, but the strategy right. is. We had very serious union busters. They filed objections. I got a phone call at that point from the head of the union saying, "Get in here because we're in huge trouble." I got there and I said, "Look." We cannot play the legal game here. I mean, let the lawyers do their formal responses. We got to get workers ready to strike. We got to get the entire city of Philadelphia involved in this fight. We got to get ministers, faith leaders, religious leaders, everyone in the power structure who actually has power. And I want to emphasize that. Everyone in the power structure who actually has power. I mean, there's a lot of nice people out there and we love you all. But in a, in a fight to the death with companies like this, with union busters, the workers, first of all, have to be strong and ready to strike. They also have to have the entire power structure with them. And if you can do those two things, they can do what we did, which our demand was drop the objections, like literally withdraw your objections. And our side's lawyers thought we were flat nuts. They'd never seen any company with a union buster withdraw from the legal process. We put so much pressure on the employer. The nurses themselves did this work, and I need to underscore this. This was not, quote unquote, paid professional staff doing it. In the methods that I teach, there's the workers getting themselves strong first and strike ready. We call it building strike ready unions. Then once they're strike ready, because that's the most important thing that has to happen, the, the community and power structure campaign has to come second. So the workers have to build strike ready first. Then they tap into and begin to do one-on-one -on -one grassroots, in this case, nurse-to-nurse, -nurse, in this case, Amazon worker-to-Amazon worker, which they've already done to win the election. One-on-one -on -one conversations with each other where they actually chart all their own connections to the power structure. Who's your minister? Who's your imam? Who's your rabbi? Who's the head of the African Solidarity League on Staten Island? Who's the whatever the immigrant base is? You literally have workers in grassroots conversations, meaning bottom-up, 
then begin to chart their connections, then they themselves, not staff, must go out because they've got what we call the strong ties to their own community. They then go out and begin soliciting letters of support. Why do I encourage workers to get letters of support from people in the power structure? Because you really don't know that they're doing it. No, if they say, oh, I'm going to make a phone call. You have to say, that's great. We're so happy you're going to call the CEO, but I actually need a letter that's written to me so my coworkers can see that you're standing with us. And that actually... I'm just going to say it's a super important part of the method. The demand that was given in Philadelphia by the power structure, ministers, faith leaders, electeds, was a demand that they withdraw and drop their objections. That strategy worked brilliantly in the end. The workers eventually got to the table. The employer, despite the $1.1 million the company spent fighting them, the workers and their connections to the power structure got the employer to actually drop the legal objections. We got a negotiated agreement then to get to the, because they had wasted four months We forced them to sign an agreement saying they'd give us negotiation sessions every week, twice a week, to make up for lost time for like the first month, and then thereafter, at least weekly. So that's how you get a recalcitrant union buster to the table. Now, all this is about the Amazon workers themselves doing all this work. And the most amazing thing about Chris Smalls and his friend's effort is that they did this all by themselves without any national labor union support. But in the meantime, the Teamsters leadership at their last election announced they would make organizing Amazon their top priority, starting with the warehouses. And then last month, the AFL-CIO announced that they will help the Teamsters unionize Amazon warehouses. It's the first time these two giant bodies have agreed to collaborate on something in, I don't know, decades. So, What role do you see the Teamsters and the state and local labor councils playing in organizing more Amazon warehouses? One thing I want to do, though, is just quickly insert there was support from a couple of big unions, and it matters to say it, just like the legal order matters. Unite Here, which is one of our better national unions, donated their entire office space in New York City for weeks of phone banking and a very sophisticated phone banking system. The communication workers, again, Also in New York City, very progressive communication workers who've had their hell fights of their own, just like I described in the Philadelphia fight. They had a hell fight with Cablevision, where they fought for five years over these objections. So two unions in New York actually made a pretty meaningful contribution to help them get to the end game. That that came later, but I think it's important to note. Um, In addition, Make the Road New York, which is one of the stronger community-based organizations in New York, donated some of the free lawyers uh, to help them understand the legal process. So all hail the workers and their capacity to absorb, learn, understand. But there was some help at the end, and that help actually mattered. Um, Having sophisticated phone banking technology is a good thing when you're doing get out the vote on 8,600 workers. So, But backing up to your larger question, there has been rhetoric from the National Trade Union Movement for years about Amazon, and there have been failed efforts, as we know. I think the most exciting of the ones that you raised is actually gonna be the Teamsters for several reasons. Again, one, they've got brand new leadership. Sean O'Brien was sworn in a month ago, basically. He ran on a campaign to make Amazon central, not the center, but central to his campaign platform. And he did it in a way that was exactly correct. And it went like this. First of all, brothers and sisters, would would O'Brien say, we have to restore the brilliance of our original UPS contract that they won back in 1997 
that for people old enough to remember it, the 1997 strike by the Teamsters, the most brilliant strike of my lifetime at that point, up until that point, happened. And it was the demand by the Teamsters to convert part-timers to full-time. So that was a structural challenge, just like Amazon's going to be, turning crap jobs into real jobs with real benefits and getting out of the part-time work business. That's very significant because, again, it was we call a structural fight. It wasn't just increase the wages. It was forcing UPS, who was in a race to the bottom, to make crap jobs good jobs. They won a brilliant contract after a hell strike, right, to get to it nationwide. Now, that contract under the leadership that came in for the last 20 years has just been weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened because they did not have fighting leadership and they were not prone to strike. So O'Brien, the, pres- the newly elected president of the Teamsters, said their national UPS contract is up next year. They're already gearing up right now. What he understands is they have to restore to full glory the power of what was a brilliant contract. Why? Because it's when workers see other workers winning tremendous contracts and quality of life that they all want that they begin to be emboldened to fight themselves. So part of what's so exciting about O'Brien's leadership is he deeply understands we got to win a great contract to show the difference between crap jobs at Amazon and what a real union contract can do, which is life transforming. And he also said something very important, which that which is that they plan to use their rank and file members who are under their best contracts to be the people leading the campaigns in the Amazon facilities. And again, when you've got a worker to worker conversation going on where they can say, let me tell you what my contract says, and they can hold up their contract and show it to a not yet union Amazon worker. I got to say, as a longtime hospital organizer, nothing trumps saying, here's the contract these workers have. How's that look to you? And then you get to explain to them it's not going to be as easy as just going. It's going to be hard as hell. But at the end of it, you got the chance to win this contract, right? So I think that's why I'm most encouraged by the new leadership at the Teamsters. They are a logical union. They do have warehouses. They do have drivers. They are delivery people. Same sector, same worker. Closing thoughts on what's going to happen next in Staten Island? We've got an election coming up that starts on Monday at the much smaller facility, which is called LDJ5. That's the sortation facility. Uh, Roughly 1,500, 1,500 workers. I think it's going to be hell hard. We know already from reports on the inside, Amazon isn't taking a chance this time. They're bearing down on the workers very hard. So I would say got a good chance. No one thought they did last time. So I'm not going to get in the prediction business here. I'm just going to say it's going to be hard as hell to win. Whether or not they do, 8,600 at the main facility is enough to do everything I described earlier, meaning to pull out a win, to force the objections out, to get strike ready, to bring the power structure in. So all focus right now is on the second election. But then with that in the rearview mirror, win, lose or not, they're going to go straight at starting to starting to have the fight that's going to get them to the negotiations table. Parallel to that, they're getting phone calls from more than 50 facilities, I think, and even from international facilities. Uh, and so let the organizing begin with the lessons from the beautiful workers at the Amazon Labor Union. Let the organizing begin. Jane McAlevey is the nation's strikes correspondent. Read her piece about the Amazon Workers Union at thenation.com. Jane, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you. At Parker. 
Our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Now it's time to talk with Margot Jefferson about her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, a Memoir. Her earlier memoir, Negroland, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2016. We talked about it here, about growing up in Chicago in a world of black respectability and then going to college in the black power era. Before that book, she had won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism for her work as book and arts critic for the New York Times. And she's also written for The Nation magazine. Margot Jefferson, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to return. Well, you wrote in Negro Land, that's the world in which you grew up, that one of its foundational principles was you don't tell your secrets to strangers, certainly not secrets that expose error, weakness, failure. Seems like with this new book, you have left Negro Land forever. Uh, right at the beginning, you're already telling us about your workaday monster. This is a stunning passage where your monster tells you that you are a coward in work and love and that it's time to blame your dead parents, but that to do that, you must be nuanced. You must be literary. What was it like to write those parts, to tell secrets about weakness and failure to strangers, to violate your parents' principles? Well, you know, I had done some violating in Negroland. My father had died by the time I started writing Negroland, but my mother's feelings were mixed. She would supply me with stories and anecdotes. And, you know, so a part of her, the, um, the waggish <laughs> literary part was very interested in all of this. So I thought I will take these liberties, but in any case, here I am alone in the world. In that way, an orphan who's an adult. Um, it was... Mm, difficult, but also, but it was exciting um, because once you identify, name something you call a monster, you know, you've, you've entered non-realistic territory and your imagination gives your emotions license, you know. So I thought, all right, um, and it, it's a code, you know, it's a series of metaphors, so it's, it's fine. And it, um, I, the thing that I, I suppose I've, I still dread about um, self-revelation is self-satisfaction, uh, exonerating yourself somehow <laughs> by some means or another when nobody else gets exonerated or excused. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote that and I tried to write it, and I think I did in a way that 
pointed the the ironies, the um, tiny little um, self-indulgent hypocrisies, um, but but necessities also, emotional necessities that pointed them out um, and made them into a story, you know, um, a dialogue, a scene. And, you know, that old trope of the of the second self. You know, which the monster is in a way. It's amazing how flexible and fluid that one still is. Well, most of the book is not about your monster. There's many exhilarating parts, like uh, you and your sister doing Ike and Tina. It's 1961. You were 13. Were you Ike or were you Tina? Well, I was both the Ikeettes initially, and then I really had to step in and be Ike. And <laughs> my sister was claiming Tina. Um, so I, you know, I, I had to work with that as best I could. Uh, all of us um, were thrilled by their music. And every girl, you know, was enraptured by Tina. But since she claimed her, you know, <laughs> I had to, you know, like an actor with maybe a lesser part. I, I had to do what I could and I ended up getting left with this unexpected um, interest, you know, continuing lifelong interest in the, um, the chill killer, the chilly killer mysteries of Ike Turner. On the other hand, Ella Fitzgerald, we have to talk about Ella Fitz, you and Ella Fitzgerald, her singing was perfect, but there was something about Ella that bothered you, the way in which she was not perfect. Exactly. You know, I, of course, first heard her, as everyone of my generation did, when I was when I was a girl. And the records were dreamy and my parents spoke about them. And that voice is um, is enchanting. But as a little girl in the 50s and, you know, into the 60s, I was craving, you know, questing for glamour, for irreproachable, <laughs> flawless Glamour. Um, I think all girls of all races and ethnicities were. There was a particular intensity if you were black or another person of color because you, know, you were not sanctioned um, as a potentially beautiful, desirable creature by the larger culture. So you know, the investment, for example, in Lena Horne, who was accepted, you know, as an icon of culture, was huge. Um, so Ella, Ella threw me off. Um, she was, you know, she was very, she was well-spoken, she dressed well, but she was, she was a hefty matron. And the sweat, she was one of the only, she was the only woman I ever saw on television, I mean, working so hard and so openly that sweat dripped down her face. Working class labor, one is, I, I associated sweat with, and manliness. You know? mm. What it says now, of course, is I brook no interference with my needs as a musician. You know? <laughs> and, and, but it, it rattled me. I was very involved in um, manners and proprieties, at least their surfaces. And you know, very anxious about what you violated and what the cost was. Her greatest album was Ella in Berlin, 1960, which ends with her incredible performance of How High the Moon, song from the 40s, Somewhere There's Music. This super fast scat singing of hers draws on quotes from, you, you discovered 45 other songs, including to the tune of Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, she sings Sweat Gets In My Eyes, Ella drawing on 45 other songs in six minutes of singing is a little bit like what you do in this book. 
Oh, don't I wish. But, but you know, let's say it became a kind of um, model, at least for me. That's right. The, the reaching out, the um, almost excessiveness, and then, you know, the bringing it in um, to shape it and structure it. Yeah. Well, that's very nice. I love that. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, I guess it was a model. Isn't it funny that I haven't thought of it in that way when that chapter is so obsessed you know, with Ella? But yeah. Then we get to Bing Crosby, one of the whitest and one of the least sweaty people on earth. Mr. White Christmas, you call him. The most shocking sentence in your book is, I'm Bing Crosby. Why? You know, there again, it's a little bit like Ike Turner. There's a, 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 always a mystery to these um, non-licensed obsessions. Um, but I must also add one of the things that intrigued me. First of all, there's a kind of triumphant, traditional, mainstream, nothing is disturbing you know, the rules and regulations and myths of American culture. Utter power, white male power, uninhibited, uninterrupted, not having to labor, you know, to assert itself being very cool. And that, that spectacle was fascinating. The other thing, though, that intrigued me, um, which Gary Giddens, of course, um, explores so well in his Bing Crosby work, he had begun as um, a pop jazz singer who worshipped Louis Armstrong and Big Spiderbeck and Ethel Waters. <laughs> and you can hear you know, again, it's that sense of the double and triple personalities. You hear that in the early work, you know, uh, with the Paul Whiteman band, with the, quote, rhythm boys. Then you watch these transformations you know, into dear hearts and gentle people, into the Bob Hope movies, into a frightening kind of Mr. America. But that he could get away with all of it is what fascinated me. And that's what made me feel that it was... in my version of um, claiming the license that a minstrel has. You put on that mask um, because they have something you want, but you drop it when it's over. You know, it's, it's, it's presuming. It's presuming. So I wanted to reverse that power dynamic. One of my favorite moments in the book comes when you're in eighth grade, 1960, when you see West Side Story, the stage play, with Cheetah Rivera singing, I want to live in America, you write, Latins are a deluxe signifier for Negroes on stage and screen, an alluring, enviable addition of non-white people with histories not wholly bound to the history of slavery in the United States. What a great sentence. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, and also with a range of looks that allowed them, you know, the lighter skin sometimes, the straighter hair, you know, the, well, I'm Mexican. Nah, not that, now, that's been turned into by certain right-wing <laughs> quarters, an insult. But in, but in the old days, ah, you know, that was, that was somewhere. It still had a place in the culture. The same was true if you think of, and which I think I did write about in Negroland, Flower Drum Song. For example, the same and the king and I, Asians could um, occupy that same role from the point of view of blacks in those those movies. You know, a limited, controlled, and contained glamour, but glamour. Can we talk about black feminist anger modes? What you call your muses, your coaches, and your exemplars, which I guess starts with Nina Simone. You say. My friends and I 
were besotted with Nina Simone. You call her works in the 70s an oracle of our collective grief and fury. Wow. She was. And actually, interestingly enough, for male listeners, too. You know, she she really claimed that grief and fury. Having begun um, always with that extraordinary voice and power, but having begun much more in the kind of um, jazz American popular song mode. Uh, those first, you know, that first album, um, you know, her versions of I Loves You, Porgy, or um, Mood Indigo, uh, but always um, that intensity that, that implied, I'm controlling this song. You know, I'm, the song is not controlling me or offering me a vehicle to be um, enchanting. I'm controlling it. I'm interpreting it. I'm, I'm crafting it with my persona. And then, you know, she did move into this um, really almost epic um, political god and goddess-like um, presence. We, we didn't know at the time that she was, now we do. At the same time, you know, suffering hugely um, emotionally, um, bipolar, etc., which makes her to me all the more um, impressive, actually. Yeah. Yeah. With an edge of tragedy um, because of all that pressure placed on her to be as a radical, even as a black radical exemplary, um, as had been pressed on her (laughs) when she was more a jazz performer. But astonishing, you know, uh, one of a kind. But you decide that you prefer for yourself what you call the counter diva mode, where anger uses comic brevity. Tell us about that. Well, you know, we work with um, our limitations as well as our advantages. <laughs> so um, I recognize, particularly from my very early days dabbling in acting, you know, that I, I do better with certain modes of aggressive reserve <laughs> um, and play, underplaying something rather than overplaying it. So you know, I one studies that. Um, and the, that whole chapter of female anger, which actually starts with adolescent, you know, modes. Um, you know, it really is all about how you make your way through um, all of these feminine styles. Some blatantly angry, very few, um, in, the, in the early days. Um, some very, with angry subterfuge, you know. Um, and you, you adapt what you can for your own circumstances, you know, my, oh, and also for your own aesthetics, you know, with my sister as, as uh, it was Martha Graham, you know, she was a modern dancer, but, you know, when, when she saw Martha Graham pull um, a red cloth out of what were her innards <laughs> to simulate Medea, you know, she, what, you know, where else could you achieve that kind of power? You know, you internalize those, those things. And every movie of Betty Davis is for the same reason. Even when Betty lost, <laughs> her style won out. And her will, her will won out. At the very end of your book, you describe a meeting you attended of a group called Black Women for Wages for Housework. This is in the 70s. You quote a speaker who says, I'm tired. I'm tired for what my grandmama did. And you wrote in your diary that you were disdainful about what you called wearing the garb of ancestral suffering. This was 40-some years ago. What do you think about that today? I see what I was saying. I didn't want to 
And it was something a lot of um, feminists and Black feminists in particular were examining. You know, how do we do justice to history without claiming that suffering and moving ahead with it, almost as if it were a theatrical, you know, garment to wear? I think I was harsh on that young woman, but I see um, what I was grappling with in myself. Uh, because I then go on to talk about my grandmother and and the the power and the um, pressure um, exerted by that power of the figure of the black grandmother, you know, <laughs> who can do everything and and who represents um, all that is noble, but also was oppressive in that in your history. So you are constantly feeling you must live that up to that. It's just a really moving part of your book. I, you know, partly because I, I adored my grandmother, you know, so that combination of, of rapture and intimidation with um, an authority figure is, is an authority figure who has personal authority, but also has historical authority. That is formidable um, as a formative influence. So you have a wonderful list, which is actually a description of what, how your parents' world regarded Black popular culture, but I think it also applies to to you in, in this book. You have used, honored, disdained, studied, learned from, borrowed from, stolen from, been inspired by, gone slumming in this huge list of books and movies of music. It's the first book I know of to bring Willa gathered next to Ike Turner and you overcame the voice that said, you can't do that. So all I can say to that is, wow, and thank you. Oh. <laughs> Let me just add that Willa and Ike are not in the same chapter. <laughs> and inhabit this larger landscape of the same book. Um, and yes, that passage you read, I believe that, you know, I was writing, I think, in that passage, as you say, about our relations to Black culture, but it's also what I'm doing with white culture, isn't it? Margot Jefferson's new book is Constructing a Nervous System, a Memoir. Margot, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.